This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. Concern over rising violence in Afghanistan. Is the plan for military withdrawal by 2015 overly ambitious? Military effect is never enough. It needs to be supplemented by a political approach. Unrest on Russia's streets over election results. But how significant are the protests? And does blogging and tweeting from the battlefield give us the real story about life on the front line? There are fresh concerns about the rise in violence in Afghanistan. On Tuesday, almost 60 people died in two bomb attacks targeting Shia Muslim worshippers in the cities of Kabul and Mazar-e-Sharif. Yesterday, 19 people died in a roadside bomb attack in Sangin. The violence forced the Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, to cancel a planned trip to the UK for talks with David Cameron. Sitrep's Matt Teal has spoken to former British ambassador to Afghanistan, Sir Sherrod Cooper-Coles, and asked him what he he thought about the attacks and the country's readiness for security handover. Well, I react with great sadness. Uh, I believe that for most Afghans this uh, fulfills their worst fears of the possibility of civil war after Western forces ceased combat operations in 2014. I think it's a, a warning signal. It means we have to redouble our efforts to get the Afghan forces in a state to take over in 2014. But more important than that, it underlines the need for a serious political settlement. No army in the world, even the British army, the American army, let alone the Afghan army, can uh, secure Afghanistan unless there is a wider political settlement involving all the parties to the dispute within Afghanistan and then all the regional powers. Otherwise, it's like uh, trying to make peace in Northern Ireland without Sinn Féin and without the Irish Republic. What do you make of that decision to set that date of 2014 and how likely is it that any kind of political settlement could be put in place before that time? Well, I think uh, it was the right thing to do, but it needs to be accompanied by a political process. Uh, just saying you're stopping fighting unconditionally is signalling to the Taliban that you're going to walk off the battlefield come what may. Uh, what you want to say is we will walk off the battlefield, we're planning to walk off the battlefield, but in, uh, between then and now we are going to uh, work all out to uh, deliver a new political settlement involving Pakistan, above all, India, China, Russia, the three Stans, Iran, and we're going to bring all the internal parties to the dispute together. And the initiative for that needs to come from Washington, it needs to come from Mrs Clinton. How likely then, with that date already being set of 2014, is there time for that kind of settlement to be put in place? Yes, Matt, there is. I mean, three years is a very long time in Afghan politics. Uh, all Afghans know, all uh, British servicemen and women who served in Afghanistan know that the way these disputes end is over endless glasses of tea, sitting round in a jirga, sitting round in uh, what the Arabs call a shura, the elders getting together and brokering a compromise. And we now uh, need to be helping deliver that. You're quoted as saying that if that isn't put in place, it would be a, a disgrace. Um, are you sort of fearing now that the US don't really have the, the appetite for this? Are they, from their point of view, are they feeling like they've had their fill of Afghanistan? 
I'm, it worries me. It worries me about America on several fronts, the will of America to do the right thing, to do the necessary thing. And uh, as I said, I think the best way of honoring our troops, uh, the sacrifices they've made, uh, the best way of harvesting the undoubted tactical success they've had is for the politicians and diplomats to uh, be working to use the military leverage we've uh, exerted to uh, secure a political settlement. That's what happened in Ireland, Malaya, Kenya. Uh, it's how wars end successfully. Uh, military effect is never enough. It needs to be supplemented by a political approach. What are your opinions on the current, current uh, U.S. military strategy in Afghanistan and its uh, sort of fostering of that countrywide reconciliation that you say is so important out there? Well, I'm afraid I, I thought General McChrystal got it right. He was winding down the violence. He was uh, telling his troops to exercise courageous restraint. Uh, and he was um, winding back on airstrikes. I'm afraid... Uh, General Petraeus went in the opposite direction, ramping up the violence, uh, increasing the number of special forces strikes, in increasing the number of airstrikes. And uh, that may make sense, but only as part of a political strategy to immediately turn those sort, that sort of political pressure into political results. But if you're not uh, reaching out in a serious way to the Taliban, and that uh, means not leaving it to the Afghans. It means signaling that the United States is ready to engage with them. It means uh, working with Pakistan for all its faults, for all its uh, obvious differing objectives. We, Pakistan, for better or worse, has to be part of the solution. So I'm afraid I have my doubts about the wisdom of what General Petraeus did of uh, increasing the violence without a serious political strategy. And in the end, of course, we need to lower the temperature in Afghanistan to try and uh, uh, make the country more peaceful, less violent, uh, more accustomed to doing business in the, the normal ways that peaceful countries do. And without that political strategy, what do you fear could happen in the country post-2014? Well, at, at very worst, it could be civil war, it could be Taliban takeovers in part of the country, it could be a patchwork of... Uh, mini-empires run by warlords. Uh, but, you know, what breaks my heart is that uh, if uh, the politicians simply march the armies out of Afghanistan without that political settlement, much of their work will be in vain. So if I were a general, I'd be saying to uh, the political leaders, uh, if you want us to do this, of course we will, please, please uh, put, make it part of a wider political strategy. Uh, to stabilise the region and to stabilise Afghanistan. That was the former ambassador to Afghanistan, Sir Cheryl Cooper-Coles, talking to Matt Teal. Well, I'm joined by BFPS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Um, a worrying change, the type of violence this week, and it appears to be sectarian. What does it mean exactly? It does appear to be sectarian, i.e. Shia versus Sunni. Um, this was an attack um, on a shrine uh, at a very holy Tuesday's festival. attack. Yeah, Ashura. Uh, and this comes at the end of a month of mourning for the grandson of Mohammed. So it becomes very, very, very important. But uh, when you consider, for example, this was an attack on the Shia, the Shia only 20% uh, of the population, uh, the rest are Sunnis, uh, you think, well, why didn't it happen before? What's different? Because they have more or less lived quite happily together. Now, the Shias never supported, ever supported Taliban. 
But when the Russians were there in the first place, you know, back in 79 when they went in there, they were there for 10 years, what happens is the Shias, a lot of the Shias escaped to Iran. Iran Shias. They then became armed. The Sunnis escaped to Pakistan. They became armed. And there you have the militancy. You were saying about the timing of it. Obviously, there was the Afghanistan conference in Bonn this week. How does this, these attacks fit into that Well, it was timetable? also the lawyer Jerga, if you remember the pre- previous Indeed. week, the meeting, 2,000 people, the, 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 you know, the great elders meeting. So who's and the Taliban tried to get in there to blow up part of the lawyer Jerga and failed. They were going to do something with Bonn and couldn't get in. And they failed there. So, so everybody was waiting for a big thing to happen, literally a big explosion. And that's why so many people will, despite what Taliban say, they'll say, this is Taliban fighting a new type we, we of war. We had this deadline for the withdrawal combat troops. Uh, you've had this conference where Pakistan wasn't there and where the Taliban wasn't there. Do you think this is new groups trying to vie for position to fill that gap with the deadline looming, thinking this is our chance to start making a, a, our point and taking control for ourselves? Uh, no, I think... No. Uh, Pakistan not there, very important. They were not there because they're fed up with the Americans after the attack on uh, a Pakistan military base just over the border. But that's going to change. You know, they'll, they'll be back together. People will start talking to Taliban together. This is, see that I'm not coming to the Bonn conference stuff. See that it, for uh, performance not against the Americans, not against the rest of NATO, but for the Pakistan people. Um, that's what's what the leadership. That's what's happening there. And don't forget the people that really run Pakistan are the military, mm. Kayani's uh, army and the intelligence services. They are the key people, and therefore they are being the toughies on this. In terms of the, in terms of the the NATO campaign in Afghanistan, the former British ambassador was saying there to Matt that he felt that McCus- Stanley McChrystal got it right, this cautious, restrained approach, and that Petraeus got it wrong. What do you think? Yeah, I think I, I think what happened is that uh, Petraeus got it right up to the point that was necessary, uh, and then so militarily he got it right. But was he not backed up, or has he not? He wasn't being... backed. He well, he was backed up uh, politically, but not in the in in the in the way he wanted. He didn't have the forces he wanted. For example, you know, it's a fair tale along Whitehall. The other thing that McChrystal came along, and he did the next. Ex- or he did the extension to it. The important thing to remember, though, and I think everybody might well be worth reading, is what uh, Haig said, William Haig, the British Foreign Secretary, said at the end of the Bond meeting. He said, we commit ourselves to beefing up the defence forces, not just training, but to protect the security of Afghanistan effectively to 2025. You're a British soldier. It's very likely you Mm. can be involved in Afghanistan Mm. for the next 20 years. Uh, on the point of the deadline, there are reports today that the senior U.S. general in Afghanistan, General John Allen, is asking for a year's pause, a kind of let's stop and think before uh, in the drawdown timetable. Ta- time what do you think of that? Is there some kind of discrepancy between what the military are saying and what the politicians are saying? Uh, if you want job done, mission accomplished, which the Americans like to think they're going to do, they're not going to do it in the time available. They've got to get the training groups in, they've got to get the army sorted, they've got to get the police sorted, and so they would like another year little bit of a problem, and that is President Obama is going for a, an election uh, this time next year. Will he, will he be in his second term? If he gets them out of Afghanistan, yes, he probably will. Still to come is mass migration, the fastest growing threat to security. And RAF Airman talks to us about the joys of blogging and tweeting from the front line. 
Russian cities have seen a third night of unrest following the weekend's parliamentary elections. Demonstrators claim the vote was rigged in favour of Prime Minister Vladimir Putin's party. Yesterday, the former leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, called for a rerun of the vote. And today, Putin has accused the United States of inciting the demos, saying US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave a signal to Kremlin opponents to start their protests. Former Kremlin advisor Alexander Nekrasov joins us now. Thanks for your time today, Alexander. How significant are these protests? Well, unfortunately, it shows that the uh, election was a mess in the sense that the ruling party, the United Russia, uh, the Kremlin and the government, they didn't really think uh, long and hard of what messages to bring to people and, you know, how to explain why things are not going well and so on. So, in a sense, they were taking the people for granted. And uh, this, um, that announcement uh, that uh, uh, the United Russia Party made when Putin basically swapped seats with uh, uh, President Medvedev saying, you know, we're going to replace each other, that was not a good move, not good at all. And uh, I would have been very surprised if there wouldn't have been any street protests after this election. And if the votes were rigged, how were they rigged, do you think? Well, the rigging itself, I think what, what the people objected to is that the ruling United Russia Party basically has the advantage over any other party simply because it's got more uh, money, it's got more access to um, television, radio, newspapers and so on. So in a sense, the rigging it was not you know, that, that, that millions of votes were just uh, were f- falsified. I think it was more to do with, with the preferential treatment that the ruling party had. Oh, we know that Vladimir Putin has his eyes on the presidency next year. Do you think these protests, though, will bring the end of his leadership? I don't think those protests will uh, destroy his uh, credentials or his chances of winning the election simply because he has uh, no opponents. Uh, not because he's a brilliant politician, but because the Russian political system is still being developed. It's still basically Soviet, in essence. There is no uh, real opposition. And uh, if if we talk about the opposition, by the way, if you see those people on television and in newspapers, like the likes of Mikhail Kasyanov, former prime minister, or Boris Nemtsov, former deputy prime minister, these two people have contributed themselves to this robber-baron capitalism that developed in the 90s. They presided over it. So for them now to be saying to the Russian people, we know what to do, we know we, we should be there, it's, 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 they have no support in country at all. So what are the chances, do you think, of the uh, vote being overturned and there being a, another election? I, I think it's absolutely zero chance. Uh, and I can tell you another thing. Once uh, Mikhail Gorbachev said that the vote was rigged and it should be uh, t- taking place again, most Russians will say, okay, we will not have this, because he is probably one of the most unpopular politicians in Russia. He is blamed by many Russians for the uh, disintegration of the country, for most of its economic problems. So, in a sense, Putin is having his way by all the wrong people calling on the government to stage another election. The national news networks in Russia largely ignoring these protests. Is there any such thing as free speech in Russia? Uh, well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, th- th- it's a strange combination there. For example, uh, if you take criticizing of the, uh, of the government, of the Kremlin, of its policies, there is some. You, you can't say it doesn't exist. But uh, on the whole, 
I wouldn't say that Russia is a dictatorship with no free speech in it. I wouldn't say that. It's just that uh, these elections, I think it was absolutely abysmal, uh, abysmally handled by the government and the United Russia Party. I think the advisors to Putin, and I was an advisor to the Kremlin and to the government, and I know, are telling him all the wrong things, for example... Well, what would you be saying to Putin right now if you were advising? Well, I would not, first of all, have handled the campaign like that. I would not have told uh, Prime Minister Putin, go out there and say that foreign money was used to influence the elections. This is a stupid thing to say. These are his advisors trying to find an explanation why they failed. I would have said to him that, make your strong point this, we have lost 70 seats. That, in Western terms, is a meltdown uh, for any political party. So if you're going to tell me that we've read the elections, uh, we've lost them. So you see, the, 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 the debate between Putin and the opposition, or United Russia and opposition, is in a very strange way going, you know, sort of berserk, because they've lost the election. The United Russian Party lost the election, and yet they're being accused of rigging it. It's a very strange situation. Indeed. Uh, Christopher, uh, NATO foreign ministers are holding talks in Brussels today with their Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. Uh, what are they going to be talking about exactly? Well, in the margins, i.e. the corridors, privately... They want to say uh, we have uh, Prime Minister Putin accusing, for example, uh, the, the Americans of inciting his opposition to him to get on the streets. Um, we had uh, recently President Medvedev uh, saying that if, uh, if, we, if, if NATO but their missile defense systems continue with it in, within Europe on the Russian borders, then, then Russia will retaliate. They want to hear... Are they serious about this? Or is this part of the strongman thing the, uh, that is leading towards the official uh, elections uh, next year? Is it all going to sort of smooth over? Officially, they'll be talking about Afghanistan, Syria, the need for UN support. And to some extent, uh, it's very important that they talk about oil and gas and energy supplies uh, etc. So it's the in the margins. Watch for what comes out, not from the official statements, because that is likely from Mr. Lavrov. It's likely to be quite sort of rumbustious, let's say, uh, not quite aggressive, but pretty pretty strong. Watch what you hear that's coming out from the corridors. Uh, Alexander Nekrasov, um, why is what happens next in Russia so important to us? Well, I mean, Russia is a key player in, in any game. You, you look uh, at the map and, and it's, it's, it's involved. I mean, gas and oil on the one thing, on the one side, then there's obviously Afghanistan, the Middle East on the whole. I think the West is not handling uh, relations with Russia properly. I think the Obama administration has one of the worst foreign, political, uh, foreign policy teams in its history. I mean, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, excuse me, we are laughing at this. They should not have been pressing with the uh, ballistic, anti-ballistic missile system simply because there was basically an agreement reached that you don't do this and you don't, we don't do this. And suddenly it's all being broken, everybody forgets this. And another thing that the Russian people generally, not just the politicians, don't understand. If we don't have any new Cold War anymore, why push the boundaries of NATO? Why strengthen NATO eastern uh, borders? Why get in more countries like Georgia wants to get in and so on? This is a very, very strange situation. And I actually understand the... the, the, the 
position of the Kremlin on that on that point because this is NATO is doing all the right things. It's losing the war in Afghanistan. It has not performed well in in Iraq. And you know, for for, for NATO now to start flexing its muscles with Russia when it has when it's better have it as an ally, I think it's a big big mistake. And on that point, Alexander Nekrasov, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Now, Christopher, this time last week you were chairing a conference in Rome and what you've been telling me is one of the biggest emerging security threats. Uh, just tell us a bit more about it. OK, there are basically four causes for war. One is because uh, people sort of eyeball each other for a long time. No solution to it and it breaks out from some problem. Um, another one is sort of natural resources. Third one could be border disputes and a fourth one is likely to be something like energy, uh, etc., people getting at it. Now, there's one thing that comes out of all this, is mass migration of populations. Every time you get a war, every time you get a conflict, every time you get an economic problem, look at what's happening in the east, uh, eastern part of Africa at the moment, 30 million people starving, you get mass migration. We have applauded, or we, talking about Western Europe, have applauded, for example, the uh, the Great Spring, Arab Spring. Mm. The result of the Arab Spring has been a mass migration or attempted migration from North Africa into Europe. Um, people have been coming at such a rate, 50% of them have died trying to do it, crossing the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is a floating grave at the moment for and, a load of people. And you were talking to NATO planners, weren't you, last week about this problem. What, what are they saying exactly? What, what are they trying right. to do? Well, the important thing about this is that there is something called rabbits, and it's the Rapid Border Interve Intervention Teams. It's established under the EU in 2007, and the British can be involved in this. And that is the idea when you see a problem... A hole, for example, like people coming through Lampedusa, etc. You send forces down there and you try and fix it. Lampedusa like being that island that of Sicily. island of yeah. Sicily. And they, you send people down there, try to fix it. It's almost like a commando operation and partly it's successful. But there's something much bigger going on. And that is that in the United Kingdom, for example, the mass migration in the United Kingdom is coming through two ways. One is the sort of middle class way. There's a hole, for example, a legal hole. It's OK to broadcast this because the people who know about it know about it. You've, if you wanted to get into Britain without a passport, you get a train ticket from Br Brussels to Lille, and at Lille there is no immigration. And so you just carry on into St Pancras without a passport, without ID or whatever. And the, and the security people who are checking this out all the time are saying that this is where the, the radicals, this is where so-called so potential terrorists, that's where they're coming in. All right, Chris, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again. Over the last few years, new technology has brought life on the front line much closer to home. Blogs and tweets direct from Afghanistan give those back in the UK a much more detailed picture of day-to-day -day life in Helmand province. RAF Airman blogged and tweeted regularly during his recent tour, notching up more than 80,000 hits on his website and picking up 9,000 followers on Twitter. Well, I'm glad to say RAF Airman, real name Sergeant Alex Ford, joins us now. Alex, thanks for your time today. Um, why did you start blogging from Thursday? Um, well, I originally started blogging before I went to theatre, um, but I wanted to continue out there because I wanted people back at home to know the, the, the full story of Afghanistan. 
Your blog posts range from all kinds of things, from funny stories, for example, the recent post about taking fizzy tablets in theatre, vitamin tablets, to the more serious ones like your description of what minimise the effect of uh, communication shutdown when something terrible happens. How do you decide what to write about? Um, it kind of comes and goes. It depends upon the mood that I'm feeling of the day. Um, I try not to have too much seriousness on there because at the end of the day I want people to read it because they're entertained by it as well as finding something out. And do you have a mind of the kind of people that you're writing for when you write? Uh, it's, it's quite easy, actually. There's four different sorts of people that are reading um, what I'm pushing out. Uh, the, there are the people who want to join the, the armed forces and the air force in particular. There's the people who've been in the, the air force and the armed forces who want to find out if it's still the same as it was when they were in. There's the people who, um, who, you know, who, who want to support the armed forces as much as possible. And then there's just the people who, who are serving at the moment who are trying to find out what everybody else is doing. And do you have a favourite post? Oh, um, <laughs> Putting you yeah. on the spot now, it's a bit oh. unfair of me. But <laughs> uh, yeah, probably the, my favourite one is where I, I, it's called Two Little Boys and a Can of Coke. Um, basically, I go out on a patrol and I manage to fall in an irrigation ditch uh, <laughs> and it was a really hot day and by the time we got back um, my water had run out uh, but there was a, a cold can of coke waiting for everybody in the in the ops room um, so that was a, that was a really nice well, the best thing, one of the best things that happened was it for you uh, absolutely yeah I mean it was a really nice gesture as well so it was, it was lovely uh, and is there a post that had a particularly strong reaction um, yeah there was a, a, a post I did about a guy who, who managed to uh, unfortunately stand on an IED and had a partial, uh, partial debt of it he was, uh, he was really lucky in the fact that he, he only got a partial debt um, but that was kind of one of the first sort of hitting posts that I did that, that brought in the fact that we were actually in a war zone um, mm. I was out there to do an MSST task so quite a lot of the posts that I was putting there were were centred on the locals um, and my interactions with the locals. Uh, well, whereas this one was actually one where you know we were we were moving up on on an op, and unfortunately one of the guys stepped on an IED. Now you are an MOD sponsored blogger. What does that mean exactly? I'd love to find out myself. <laughs> actually, um, I think the best thing that it that it offers me is. Do, I mean, do, can you write whatever you like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, whilst I was out in theatre, um, I, I kind of wanted all my posts to be to be checked over before I put them out, just to be on the safe side. But um, I'm I'm left alone to post what I want when I want when I'm back in the UK, uh, and. Um, I think the best thing and the most uh, important thing that being a sponsored blogger actually offers me is the fact that the MOD are quite happy to publicise my blogs as well. So the, uh, the guys at the MOD who've been a real big help uh, and have offered me help and advice um, do uh, sort of uh, publicise my blog on the, the MOD Facebook sites and web pages. And how much do you think do, does your blogging and tweeting give, give a true picture of what life on the front line is like rather than the more formal communications? That's a good question. Um, well, it's giving my story. Um, so, you know, whether people choose to, to want to believe that it's true or not, um, I'm telling you the story that, that, that I'm doing, that I was doing out there. Uh, and I'm still doing it back here. So I'm telling the story of being a, an airman in the, in the Royal Air Force, based at RAF Benson, uh, working in an office, doing a job. Do you think um, that blogging and tweeting when you were out in Afghanistan made a difference to your time there? Was it helpful in any way for you? It certainly was helpful for me. Um, it, was, it allowed me to order the sort of events and things that went on. And, and I know a lot of people when they go out, out to theatre, you know, they, they keep their own journals and they keep their own records. 
uh, and all I was doing was keeping my own journal and record, but then occasionally taking taking some of those and, and putting them on the net for other people to read. So are we likely to see um, your writings in a book one day, do you think? <laughs> people keep asking me that. Do they? And what do you say? Go on, tell I don't, us. I don't know. Um, You've been approached? No, I haven't. Right. Um, but, but one of the things I kind of do like is the fact that it's a public record. Um, I've been reading the um, uh, Blogging on the Frontline uh, Major Mark Smythe's book, uh, and there's a preface to that where the um, one of the, the guys in the introduction sort of says that the, the 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 author has rescued these posts from the internet and i as a as a you know self proclaimed geek uh, <laughs> and lover of the internet and technology i kind of took umbrage at that and thought well, why are they being rescued if they go into a book does that make them any more valid than a than a post that's that's on the internet i, I don't think it does okay. i think it's equally valid so so alex so that you're not lost in cyberspace <laughs> would you just uh, pl- plug your website and let us know how we can follow you on twitter for those who haven't done so, uh, so yeah, far yeah the the, uh, the blogs available to be read at uh, com, and you can follow me on twitter at uh, Airman. good to speak to you sergeant alex ford thanks very much for your time today thank you Now, women are going to be allowed to serve on submarines for the first time in the silent service's 110-year history. The announcement by the Defence Secretary means that the first female officers will begin work on Vanguard-class nuclear subs from late 2013. Christopher, what's brought about this change? The Navy's last got its head round it, hasn't it, really? I mean, when you consider that when... women went to sea for the first time there was a big sort of kerfuffle about it you can't have women in ships <laughs> they'll be probably getting off with the other ratings uh, seems um, so archaic now that kind of well, film it process does, doesn't it and some of them did of course mm. and continue to do so but it was a health issue wasn't it with well, submarines well it was supposed to be a health issue and it was all all, all, all supposed to be gases because in there because it might affect women of course ratings chaps it wouldn't affect them they're roughy tufty sailors <laughs> uh, etc it's an absolute lot of rubbish when you think 9% of the navy Ne- uh, women, uh, 3,400 women in the Navy. Some of them are commanding ships. It was rather like the Church of England. When the Church of England sort of had women priests, they said, but you can't have bishops. We've now got bishops, women bishops, in the form of uh, proper sailors going into submarines. Why not? Why not indeed? But I bet the Daily Mail will love it. <laughs> Christopher, as ever, good to talk to you. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee. Just like RAF Airmen, we are on Twitter and we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We're back at the same time next week. So from me, Kate Jabot, thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. <laughs>